Hey, it's Chris Garlock. This week's show is an encore of one of our favorites, and you can check out all the latest network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. Here's the show. When we talk about the million or the march, I think one of the most important things to point out about that particular mobilization is the whole issue of the, the indispensability of black workers. One of the things that is most ridiculous about the union busting industry is how much these hacks get paid. It's a lot of unionized workforces, but the mine is really one of the main sources of good paying, family sustaining jobs down there. And we want to make sure that as municipalities look at buying rock salt, that their first look has to be right here in New York and, and in the Northeast to, to make sure that, that these jobs continue. The next 45 minutes or so can best be described as a roller coaster ride, with me hanging frantically on the outside of the car. Were they Doric linguistic twists or just a heavy local accent? It made little difference. I struggled like an angler in a river in spate to catch just a few words. We cannot drink or eat money. The fossil fuel industry and the politicians which govern this penal colony, Australia, need to acknowledge the responsibility that we have to protect country as we cannot continue down this destructive path. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, organizer Clarence Thomas talks with Building Bridges Radio about the mobilization leading up to the Million Workers March. On the Checkout Podcast, Bob Funk discusses how Labor Lab tracks and communicates information about union busting. And winter may be a long way off, but it's not too early to think about buying rock salt, specifically American rock salt. On the Union Strong podcast, we hear about the importance of prioritizing buy American legislation. Then, on the brand new podcast Union Days, Simon Sapper takes us on a wild ride from Glasgow's abattoir to Kew Gardens. We wrap up this week with the Solidarity Breakfast radio show from Melbourne, which this week brings us a report on speeches from a rally defending native rights in Australia. As always, you can find all these shows and, of course, the rest of the 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. I'm Mimi Rosenberg with Ken Nash and we're building bridges. We're joined by veteran labor organizers. Clarence Thomas, he helped organize the Million Worker March and now brings us an anthology, a gorgeous anthology, written by the activists and workers behind that radical worker event, mobilizing, in our own name, the Million Worker March movement. Specifically, when we talk about the Million Worker March, I think one of the most important things to point out 
about that particular mobilization is the whole issue of the, the indispensability of black workers. Just to take the listeners back a little bit down memory lane, 2004, the Democratic Party nominated uh, John Kerry to be its uh, standard bearer. John Kerry married to one uh, of the uh, uh, richest families of the United States of America, woman who was the heir to the, to the Heinz fortune. He was a pro-war candidate. He was a pro-Austria candidate. And so the Democratic Party was looking for the, uh, uh, the labor movement to do what it always does, and that is the, gr- the, the grunt work going out during the, the, the day-to-day on-the-ground work to get uh, support for people to vote for the Democratic Party candidate. We believe that that particular candidate and the platform that he was running on had no relevance at all to working people. Working people who have to fight the wars, it's working people who die in the wars, and it's working people who also stand up and oppose the wars when those wars proved to be unjust. But in 2004, we called for the establishment of a pro-workers agenda, one that was against the war in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, war to protect, we believed that we wanted to protect Social Security, protect, uh, uh, the, the, stop the dismantling of public education, Medicare for all, license, the, the military budget, these were all of the things that are very relevant and pertinent to a, a workers' democracy and not a bourgeois democracy. And so, therefore, we were calling for workers, organized and unorganized, social justice act activists, anti-war activists, youth, to come and assemble at the at the at the at the Lincoln Memorial on in, in Washington D.C. on October seventeenth, two thousand and four. This was the first time that black workers had called for a national mobilization at, uh, in Washington, D.C. since the March on Washington movement, which really started in 1941 under the leadership of uh, A. Philip Randolph. So we believe that that particular agenda was one that was specifically speaking to the needs the working class and and uh, uh, completely uh, anti what it was that John Kerry and his neoliberal policies that were being put forward by the Democratic Party. Now, one of the interesting things that, that took place that you mentioned earlier, maybe, was the fact that the officialdom of labor, specifically the AFL-CIO, sent out a, uh, a directive telling all of organized labor to not at all support in any way the Million Worker March. And they did so in a very explicit and undemocratic way by not at all uh, consulting with, with any of the unions that were supporting the Million Worker March. They just high-handedly said that they were against it. I'd like to make a, I'd like to just quote something very briefly. This was sent out by Marilyn Snyderman, Director of Field Mobilization Department, AFL's DIO, quote, while we may agree with many of the aims and issues of the march, the AFL CIO is not a full sponsor of the effort and will not be devoting any resources or energy toward mobilizing for a Washington demonstration this fall. 
Rather, we are completely focused on the critical importance of grassroots organizing for the national election scheduled on November 2nd. Not only did they send out this, this edict, but the Democratic Party, the weekend before the 2004 Democratic Party convention in Boston, Massachusetts, there was what I call a mini-summit of international labor union presidents, people like John Sweeney, who was head of the Evangelical CIO, a man by the name of of James Hawker, who was the international president of the Teamsters, uh, Andy Stern from SDIU. They were all there for the purpose of uh, attending the Democratic Convention. But at the uh, Kennedy family compound, there was this mini summit made up of those leaders that I made reference to, where they all came together and they were discussing the million with the march, among other things. And it was at that time that they decided that the Million Worker March was being organized at the wrong time. And this is very reminiscent of what was said to the organizers of the March on Washington in 1963, when the Kennedy administration said it was the wrong time for uh, Black folks to come to Washington, D.C., although that march did take place. But it's important to know that on the uh, uh, highest levels of the Democratic Party, there was every intent not to make or allow this particular million worker march. This is Ben Billion Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Welcome to the checkout, Bob Funk, Secretary Treasurer of Labor Lab. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. Tell me a bit about what Labor Lab is. We about a year ago we few of us put in the labor movement, put a poll out to find out just how much really workers under the age of 40 know about their legal right to start. And we came back and I don't think there was any reason to actually put a poll in the field because I think we all know what the results are. Like, unfortunately, most workers are not familiar with their section seven rights or what qualifies as an unfair labor practice under section eight. So we really started the organization to simplify what those rights are and get it out to as large of an audience as possible. We really just started with creating some informational materials that in plain English took the legal jargon out of it on what your section seven was, if that's violated, what you can do about it. From there though, one of the biggest things that continues to be unaddressed in the labor movement is really holding the union busting uh, industry accountable. Virtually everything that they do is illegal or what I call legal adjacent. And unfortunately, though, um, there's just, we know that the NLRB, they don't have the resources they need, but there's not someone that's tracking all of these activities. And we also know that it's estimated that less than 10% of union busting activities are actually reported to the Department of Labor. And even that, um, even that 10% that is, is usually reported well after the fact when the union busting campaign has already ended. So the information is now useless to the workers and the public. So what we're trying to do is bring more attention to the tactics of the union busting industry, tracking them where they're active, and then trying to hold them accountable for breaking the rules or, or even bending them. Let's talk about the union busting industry because it's, when I talk to some of these younger folks who are organizing these days and, or they attempted to organize and were defeated, 
the they, they notice a lot of similarities in the rhetoric of employers and the the threats and the sort of passive aggressive you know and just the and then also some of the organizations that employers retain to to work with them so you with labor lab you do some really interesting work tracking this sector and why don't you tell us a little bit in a general sense and maybe some specific examples as well Sure. Yeah. To your first point, one of the things that is most ridiculous about the union busting industry is how much these hacks get paid. They get paid a lot of money to, and it's a cookie cutter industry. They come in, they do the exact same thing in every workplace, which makes it really ironic that part of their messaging is we're a unique workplace. We're a family but all of our talking points are going to be exactly the same as the talking points at the last union busting campaign because we're using the same union busters and they're all con artists. Not only are they bullies that intimidate workers, they also con employers into thinking that they're some kinds of geniuses. They're not. It is a very simple playbook. John Reynolds, who is a guy that was organizing uh, No Evil Foods. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, of course. He put together a video for us um, that we posted on our blog, The Steward. It's just amazing. And it puts the infamous REI podcast Planned side by side with, with the uh, Exactly. The just one of the more um, ridiculous things I've ever listened to. But uh, he put that speech next to the uh, speech that they were given at No Evil Foods. And Identical. Words slightly changed, but it's the exact same script. And different union busters hired to advise them. It's just, it's a ridiculous industry. And that's why I feel union organizers see the same tactics everywhere. It's the same thing. So that's part of what we're doing. Actually, one of our most accessed parts of our website is union busting tactics. That gets... And that's really exciting because we're just seeing it grow and grow, the amount of traffic we're getting to it, which means that people are interested in learning about what these tactics are. What we know is that this industry is, to your the second part of your question, this industry isn't that big. It's huge in terms of the amount of money it makes. It's obscene. We spent a lot of time in 2021 building a extensive directory of union busting firms and consultants. And if you go to our website and you go to the union busting industry uh, watch list, you can list, you can see a list of all of them. Why this is useful is there's actually an organizing drive happening in New Hampshire at a hospital and some worker that was paying a lot of attention uh, to it was trying to point out that their employers had brought in a union buster and some of the fellow employees didn't believe that, like, where's the proof? Well, then they they reached out to us, they got our list and said, oh yeah, Katie, Katie Lev. I'm like, oh yeah, we know her very well, but she's <laughs> on the list. And just being able to show that, like they have hired someone whose job is to disempower you. Awesome, Bob. Thanks so much for making time to be on the checkout. Thank you so much. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. We are Union Strong. We are Union Strong. We are Union Strong. Union Strong. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the importance of prioritizing Buy American legislation, and specifically Buy American Rock Salt. And to do that, I've asked Dave Wasura to join us on the podcast. Hi, Dave. Good morning. How are you? 
Good. And I, Dave, you're the assistant to the director of United Steelworkers District 4. So explain to us, steelworkers and in District 4, what does District 4 encompass and your members as steelworkers, what do they do? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And thanks for the opportunity for being on. Uh, United Steelworkers District 4 is really encompasses the whole Northeast. We have nine states, New York being the obvious one where our district headquarters are in Buffalo, and then New Jersey, Delaware, and the New England states, and we are also lucky enough to have Puerto Rico as part of our district as well. And for the purposes of our discussion, so we're talking about rock salt, and so rock salt is what we use on our roads and bridges, right, to keep them safe, keep all of us safe on the roads and bridges. Are there other uses for rock salt other than that? That's the the primary use for the rock salt we're talking about with the Buy American legislation in New York. We make it, we take it out of the ground right in New York State. It gets used in most municipalities across the state, but we want to ensure that everywhere that it, it can be, that it should be just to protect the American jobs. So where are these rock salt mines in New York State? The, the primary one that we represent is down in Livingston County in Gen- the Geneseo area. We have roughly 250 to 300 members there that, that work underground pulling the salt out of the mine for us. So when you talk about, so we've got, you know, local governments, our state government uh, using the rock salt for the roads and the bridges. Are, do we get most of the rock salt that we use in New York State from here in New York State or do we get it elsewhere? we currently do. A bad winter for the rock salt business is actually a good winter for the way we think of it, right? A light winter, not much snow, not much need for it, not much icing, and you get a little bit of a backlog. And and what we find is companies from overseas will actually load up and dump their salt here. A lot of times up until recently, skirting environmental regulations, letting the salt sit, bringing it in through Canada sometimes, and really undercutting the price, which ends up hurting, obviously, our workers. So when we talk about Buy American Rock Salt, what would this legislation do exactly? It, it would really give preference for salt made here uh, in the United States, not only in New York, obviously that's the primary target, but to ensure that we, we keep as many people working as we possibly can. That's the goal. Look, you get down in the Livingston County and, and, and you look at job opportunities there, it's, it's a lot of unionized workforces, but the mine is really one of the main sources of good paying, family sustaining jobs down there. And we want to make sure that as municipalities look at, in a cost competitive way, buying rock salt that their first look has to be right here in New York and and in the Northeast to to make sure that that these jobs continue. Okay, good. And then if for some reason you can't just keep get it right from here in New York State, it would at least stay within the United States so that we don't have it coming in from other countries. Correct. Yeah. And and that's the big fear, right? That was the fear that we had five years ago with America-made steel and iron and, and roads and bridges and making sure that other countries can't dump it in the United States and, and undercut our workers. A, a lot of times these companies are government-owned, they're government-subsidized, and, and they're selling it actually at a loss to try and drive the American workforce out of the market. And, you know, we have a history of ensuring that doesn't happen. Where does the uh, legislation stand right now? There's only a few days left, really, in this session. Yeah, we're coming down to the wire. It's in the Assembly now. We're still very optimistic that it's going to pass. I think there's a lot of members of the Assembly who who get this, who see how important this is. We're very hopeful that by the end of of the session we do get a bill and we get it to the governor to sign. 
All right, Dave, thank you for your time. Dave Wissur, assistant to the director of United Steelworkers District 4. We appreciate all that you do, and we're going to do everything we can as well to help get this Buy American legislation passed. Thank you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. My pleasure. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary-treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State unions strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong. This is Union Days. Stories from a union scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners, but I knew I wanted to be part of the union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? you might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will, though we have changed some names and other details. Let's get started. My first proper job in the trade union movement was for the union representing specialists in the civil service. I was a negotiations officer. My boss was an assistant secretary, Joe. It's November 1986. The biggest unit on my patch was the Meat and Livestock Commission. This existed primarily to assess and apply an EU subsidy on livestock grown and slaughtered in the UK. Organisationally, it was part of the huge range of interests under the umbrella of the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. Math. Frankly, as a lifelong city boy, I couldn't have been more out of my depth. But one of the joys of representing specialists especially those who have made a career out of their particular niche, is that you do get to meet people, see things and go places that you just wouldn't normally. It's all life-affirming and positive. It is, honestly. That's absolutely what I was telling myself as the cab dropped me off outside Glasgow's city abattoir on a wet Friday night. As I paid the fare, the driver gave me a, well, if you're sure, sort of look, and I stepped out into the rain. The secretary of the Scotland, brackets, south section of our Meat and Livestock Commission branch met me at the door. It was after the close of business and the place was awash, literally, as bays, stalls and metal grid floors were being hosed down, the waste running in gullies under our feet. Was the water tinged red? Was there even just a whiff of the stench of death? 
of the fear of the animals as they became aware of what was about to happen to them? I have to honestly tell you that I'm not sure there was. The water was mucky, as you'd expect, but not blooded. The building had a smell, uh, an odour, that I was already recognising as typical of abattoirs. Industrial, a bit sweaty, a bit agricultural. This was clearly a place where processing happened. Equally clearly, animals were involved. In here, said my host, and he pushed open the door to a large lecture theatre. As I took in the rows of faces, not sullen or angry, but just end of the working day-ish, I saw more of my surroundings. At each end of the front of the hall were large double doors, running from the ceiling down to about six feet off the ground. The floor was a gentle V-shape with a drainage channel at the nadir. Above me was a heavy glide rail with huge S-hooks dangling from it. <gasps> Presumably it would be me rather than a cow carcass dangling from one of them if my audience was particularly unhappy with what I had to tell them. I felt pretty dwarfed by my surroundings, and when we started talking, the mixture of Glaswegian accents and the echo of the room just added to the air of unreality. I explained the pay deal, which would unify pay scales for many different grades across government departments and quasi-independent outfits like the Meat and Livestock Commission. It was essentially good news. Unlike the previous year, before I'd arrived in the job, they didn't have to go on strike to get more money. Questions were about pay progression, assimilation to the new scale, when and how all of this would be agreed and implemented. The next day, the night before, still felt surreal. I caught the early morning train up to Aberdeen for the same discussion with the Scotland, brackets, North section. Their members were gathered in an immediately more familiar surroundings than their southern counterparts had been the night before. They were in the upstairs room of a city centre pub, and they clearly understood me. I explained the pay deal, assimilation to the new scale, pay on promotion, key dates and so on. And then it was open to questions and views from the floor. The next 45 minutes or so can best be described as a roller coaster ride, with me hanging frantically on the outside of the car. Were they Doric linguistic twists or just a heavy local accent? It made little difference. I struggled like an angler in a river in spate to catch just a few words, something that made sense of the rest, something to unlock what was being said. I exaggerate, of course, but really not by much. What I heard varied from speaker to speaker. <gasps> Got this now, I rashly thought to myself after one contribution that I understood more of than eluded me, only to have my incautious confidence dashed by the next man to speak. One colleague made a very well-received point, emphasising his views with short, precise hand gestures. His peers and colleagues nodded and harumphed in guttural agreement. I didn't have a clue. It's always a great privilege of my work to have been able to talk to so many people on their own turf. That meeting in Aberdeen showed that not only that range, but also that so many other things can go into making people feel welcomed, or uncomfortable for that matter. My Doric ear was clearly out that day, but I couldn't have been met with more friendliness. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. Production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at .com. Thanks for listening. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital podcast or audio on demand and of course the website solidaritybreakfast.org.au solidarity forever good morning everybody annie here for uh solidarity breakfast 3cr breakfast on saturday first up we're going to revisit the gumaroy fight for their lands against santos as the lmp kick the door as they go out They've been, of course, opening the doors for more gas drilling, fracking, that sort of stuff in the oldest continent in the world that is so fragile in terms of environment that these, if uh, you're a religious person, you'd say they were committing a thin against the country. But anyway, the Gumaroi have been fighting and I've got a little report outside the Native Title Tribunal in Phillips Street, Sydney, and it was uh, sent to us by the wonderful Vivian from the Climate Action Show. This was taken outside the Native Title Tribunal on the 8th of April. There have been important times in Australian history when the First Nations people on the ground have said, this is sacred land, we don't want it dug up. And it has been trade unions together, standing together, and say, if the real owners of the land say no... We will not work on this project. We will not lift a finger on this project. I'm talking about Nook and Bar. I'm talking about the uranium mining policy that stopped Mary Kathleen and other uranium mines where workers actually stopped work to stop those uranium mines. Wharfies stopped work to block the shipment of uranium. That is the power we need to build, comrades. That is the power we need to build. And we have a statement that we're all promoting together. You can go on the website, gomeroynar.org. That means Gomeroy Strong. And I'll just read a little bit from it for you. It says, instead of gas-fired dispossession, we urgently need to be strengthening First Nations rights and investing heavily in a just transition away from fossil fuels with large-scale employment in renewable energy and sustainable development. This project cannot be allowed to proceed. And if the Native Title Tribunal will not defend Gomorrah rights, then we pledge to support a fight that will stop Santos, Moriton and Perestay on the ground. That's the commitment we make. And we now have, as endorsements to this statement, all of the education unions here in New South Wales, the teachers, the NTU, my union, right? We have the Electrical Trades Union have endorsed that statement. The construction division from the CFMEU have endorsed that statement. The Maritime Union have endorsed that statement. The United Workers Union have endorsed that statement. Amnesty International have now endorsed that statement. Human Rights Law Resource Centre and many other human rights organisations. So we are growing in power. We are growing in power and if Santos think they're going to get away with this, they have another thing coming. Our next speaker, young 
Gomeroy woman, there's a youth group, Gamilaroi Next Generation, that really put this on the map. The first time I really realised how serious this issue was when they called a demonstration here in Sydney after the initial approval. And it's been wonderful to see the resistance continuing to come from young people. So Tallulah Brown has a statement to read for us today. Thank you. I want to thank Auntie for the welcome and I also want to acknowledge the country that we're on today and acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. My name is Tallulah, I'm a Gomorrah and Southwest Asian person. I'm with my brother, Jez. We are one of the many founders of GNG who are fighting against Santos and I have a statement that I'd like to read from Ian Brown, another member and Gomorrah person who uh, isn't here today. So I'm going to read this statement out for you. Yama, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge country from Gomorrah to Gadigal and thank the Gadigal mob for allowing us to hold this rally today. I pay my respects to the old people who have cared for this land since the first sunrise. I pay my respect to our elders, both past and present, knowing that without their strength and knowledge, we would be weakened in our defense of country. Santos are utilizing the legal systems to do exactly what it was meant to do, further dispossess First Nations mob. The Pilliga is a place to which hold cultural significance to Gomorrah mob. It is a place which provided sustenance for our mob by an abundance of readily available flora and fauna, but it was and is still a place which holds cultural knowledge and ceremonial significance not only for Gomorrah, but neighboring nations as well. Allowing this project to continue will have a direct impact on our ability to continue cultural practices within the Pilliga and will disrupt any further cultural revitalization occurring on Gomorrah, which is something we cannot allow. This project also runs the risk of contaminating our Great Artesian Basin, one of the largest underground freshwater sources in the world, which provides a number of communities throughout New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, and the Northern Territory with fresh water. Water is a part of country, therefore we have the obligation to protect it. We cannot drink or eat money. The fossil fuel industry and the politicians which govern this penal colony, Australia, need to acknowledge the responsibility that we have to protect country as we cannot continue down this destructive path. So we need all nations to come together and support us Gomorrah in this campaign. Gomorrah have said no. As traditional owners have said, we do not want the Narrabri gas project on our country. So now it's time for Santos to yane and to get the hell off our country. Yalu. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today and the show notes for the podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. 
And you can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Mel Smith and Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and their social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. You can find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.